Hello, my name is Holly Owens, and welcome to Ed Up Ed Tech, the podcast that keeps you in the know about all the latest ed tech happenings. We interview guests from around the globe to give you deeper insights into the ed tech industry, the field of instructional design, and more. We're proudly a part of America's leading podcast network, the EdUp Experience. It's time to sit back and enjoy the latest episode of EdUp EdTech. Here's what's coming up on this episode. How geeky do you want to be in this? Uh, the blog post that got me the big jump in traffic initially is titled, What Does an Instructional Designer Do? Simple. It, it was. You've been identified as one of the top 100 influencers from Edgeflow. Every time a new technology comes out, there are predictions that this new technology will completely replace the old technology and we won't use it anymore. Very rarely does that happen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fantastic episode of Ed Up Ed Tech. My name is Holly Owens, and I'm your host, and you're lucky that you're tuning in today because I have an awesome guest with me who is going to talk about instructional design, scenarios, storytelling, all kinds of great things, and shares amazing resources. I have Christy Tucker, who is a learning experience design consultant with Cinead Learning on the show. Christy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Holly. I'm excited. I told you I listened to Luke's podcast with you on and I was like, I have to have on the show ASAP. All right. Before we jump into all the different projects and things and great resources you share, I want to know about your journey into this space. So how did you become like a freelancer? You know, I know you have some higher ed experience. So tell us a bit about your journey. Yeah. So I started as a K-12 music and band teacher. And I taught music and band for three years. I got burnt out on teaching for a number of reasons, but switched to teaching adults. I did corporate software training back in the days when lots of companies had computer lab to teach all of their employees how to use Microsoft Office. Yes, everybody shuffling into the, the lab space. I remember those days. Correct, correct. So I did a lot of teaching people how to use Microsoft Office and access and project and discovered that I really liked working with adult learners. But when I was training, I was teaching from canned materials for the most part. I, I was making, I made some supplemental materials and, and always liked making some of those own, of my own things. And I, I missed the creation side of it, the planning and the writing the instructions and doing all of that. And so when the office I was training out of had closed and that job ended, I started researching and found instructional design. And so it took a long time getting that very first instructional design job. But then I got that started in 2004, working for a for-profit online university. You and I have a lot in common. Yeah. So I did the, uh, the for-profit higher ed space for a while, learned a ton there and then got other jobs. So I had been, especially early in my career, I did a little bit more bouncing back and forth between being in the higher ed space and being in corporate learning. These days, and I went out on my own in 2011. So I've now been 
working as a consultant for over 10 years. And these days, most of my work is workplace training, although I do a fair amount of working with associations and I do end up somewhat in that higher education and education space sometimes through the associations, but it tends to be for training their own staff rather than the training things for students, you know, creating. Right. Cause you're comfortable in that space. You have that yep. experience. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Well, I learned something new. I did not realize you were a fellow former educator as yep. am I. So I love that you have all the higher ed, all the experience, including the freelance instructional design. I can't wait to continue the conversation and talk about all the things that we know and love about ID. But at first I want to know what's a favorite education quote of yours. So I know you, you mentioned my, my, my company that I started is a uh, Cineed learning, and that is a, a one woman company. I do not have any other employees. Oh, really? Um, oh. Yep. That is just me. That's my LLC. But Cineed is the Welsh word for idea. And Oliver Wendell Holmes once said that a mind once stretched by a new idea never regains its original dimensions. So part of why I used that word of Cineed in my company name, besides the fact that it was a domain name that I could buy for not very expensive. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I, I have liked that idea of stretching learners' minds with new ideas. And in workplace training, maybe we don't think of it that much as having ideas that are stretching people's minds as as from education or but I think that there is still plenty of that of of growing and learning. I'm so glad to hear you say that. You know, I think sometimes we do get burnt out of like, oh, we're reinventing the wheel here again. We're doing the same thing again. But I feel like you have a way of presenting it, especially for me. And I'm sure for the audience who've seen your resources that I feel very comfortable and confident learning from you. Like you simplify it down and it's just, it's so easy to take what you share and apply it. And I love that about your resources. And I, I share a lot of your stuff with some of my colleagues and people out in community spaces. I do try to be useful. Yes, you're very useful. I love it. And it is, yeah, I started blogging in 2006. I was creating a course for teachers. I worked for a company that did PLS. Well, it was Performance Learning Systems. It's now PLS Third Learning, which does graduate courses for teachers and professional development for teachers. And I was doing a course on what we then called Web 2.0 tools, blogs, wikis, podcasts, for teachers. And I decided that if I was doing this course on teaching teachers how to use social media, that I also should probably practice what I was preaching and start a blog. Yeah, absolutely. And a- here we are after all of these years. That course that I worked on with, with Will Richardson, who had written a book about using these social media tools before social media was the phrase we were using. Right that is a lot of what got me onto this path of being known in the field. Oh my gosh. I remember that, you know, and I remember like web 2.0, like being the thing and not mm-hmm. knowing it, that it was the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yep, what is was... this? And now there's yep. like what web 3.0 and 4.0. I don't even know what, what version of that we're on. Yeah. There's been various attempts to try to get things picked up with 3.0 or a four or, or some other thing, but none of them have caught on the way that that web 2.0, when we went from it being mostly passive consumption to being things where people could actively participate and create, because it used to be that it was very much 
that we were all passive consumers. I think that that's, media went that way. How geeky do you want to be in this uh, conversation? Uh, go, go for it. Go, I want to, go, I want to go be as Luke. dirty as I want to. Yes, okay. absolutely. So, so John Philip Sousa was a composer of the old school kind of marches and things. John Philip Sousa was really concerned when record players started to be popular because at the time, most people, lots of people were involved in creating music at home. Families did it and communities did it and they created music and they did it for fun at home and they were creators. And he was really concerned that with records that people would stop creating themselves and that they would just be passively listening to other people do music. And yes, records were great in that you could get these great performances and have recordings of them, but the people would be less involved in creating it. Yeah. And of course he was right. And we went through a whole period in our culture where we have had radio and TV and most of the early internet. There were very few people creating and mostly people were consuming. And now things have shifted so much where it's so easy to create and to share And we are back kind of to where the culture was in the pre-record players, where it's very easy for people to create music and share it. Yeah. You took us full circle there, for sure. So that's my completely nerdy, (laughs) I was a music teacher. No, (laughs) I love love that example and that story that you told along with it. And it totally makes sense. It reminds me of like, especially when new shiny things come on the market and like chat GPT is out there now and people are like, no, we don't want this. We're going to ban this because we think it's going to take this, this, and this away. But really like it's an evolution. It's a process. You have to see like where it's going to go. Right. Right. It's crazy to me that it's just getting nixed like right away. I used it. Have you used it? Just yesterday afternoon, I actually did did try it out and came up with some things, kind of experimenting with it a little bit. I think that the the chat GPT and, and other AI tools, it is an interesting direction. And, and I will say that this does feel like we're at a big shift. Right. This actually does feel like it is going to be a more significant shift. Yeah, I, I can agree with you there. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what that shift is. I'm ready. I'm yeah. going to be sitting down with my popcorn and my drink and I'm going to be watching the show. Yeah. So I wanted to really get your insights about, there's a lot of transitioning teachers out there, as I'm sure many have contacted you. And I know you've helped people and shared your expertise, but as a person who has worked in freelance for a very long time, how do you get in that space? Like, what does it take? And I know there's a lot of worry when people transition out of like these full-time roles around like health insurance, money. And I saw you shared your like income report the other day, which I share with my group Mm -hmm. of things coming in. How, how do you kind of mitigate those things or how do you deal with the ebbs and flows of freelancing? So I think that there is this idea that freelancing is automatically riskier than a full-time job. And I'm not convinced that it is. Because if you think about your retirement income, you would never put your entire 401k or IRA into the stocks of one company because no. you know that that would be ridiculously risky. I agree. But I'm, when not, doing, you have I'm not doing that. I'm not right? doing that. Right? <laughs> no. So you're not doing it. But if you have a full-time job, you are trusting 100% of your income to one company. That is and if you point. lose that job, then 
you have lost 100% of your income. As a freelancer, as a consultant, I generally have a couple of different clients that I'm working with or a couple of different projects, a couple of different income streams that I'm working on at any given time. So if I try to never have any client be more than 50% of my income for the year. And so even if I lose a big client, it's lousy, it's not fun, but it's not 100% of my income and I'm not down to zero. Right. What do they say in like the, the stock market world or the brokers where you diversify your portfolio? Yes. <laughs> that that sounds, is. yeah. It's and, and that's exactly what it is, is that you diversify your income. I'm now in a position where I have both client work, plus I am teaching a workshop in April and I have a branching scenario course that I teach and I'm teaching a portfolio course for UC Irvine. So like I'm teaching some other things because I'm, I'm now at this stage in my career where I've been doing this for 20 years and I'm teaching other people how to do things. That isn't necessarily the case. Most people who, who are just getting started are not also going to be teaching classes, But you can at least have development work with a couple of different companies. And a lot of freelancers end up having sort of one main project that is probably their 20 or 30 hour a week kind of thing. And then some other smaller projects. And if you stagger the start times, if we think about, you know, workplace e-learning development kind of projects, the elapsed time for a project, the total time start to finish, always includes a lot of you get to the alpha review, you send it off for review, and then you wait while people review and give yes. feedback. And you have a lot of downtime. Yes, so- I was just going to say, you're like sitting there like in anticipation. Correct. Correct. So like there's a burst where like, okay, you're make, you're creating your storyboarding or your scripting or your design documents or building the alpha version. And all of that does take time. And then you get to a point where you're doing reviews And it's not zero time, but it's also not full time. So if you can stagger when projects start, it's never perfect. Like there are definitely times where you think you're going to have these nicely staggered so that project A starts. And when project A gets to review, that project B will just start at the same time. Right. It's on deck. It's ready to go. And then the next one is a nice little flowing machine. Correct. Projects. And, and then if, if project A gets delayed by six weeks, all of a sudden you've got two things bunched up together. There is some of that. There's no easy button that fixes that. But I think in general, you can try to do that. I think dealing with the feast or famine, so much of the work in instructional design and e-learning comes through referrals and being connected to other people in the field. You know, expanding your LinkedIn network and hanging up with groups of other freelancers and having other people that you refer things to, all of that does end up helping. We all get overbooked sometimes. If I get software tutorials, at this point in my career, I really don't want to create little software tutorial videos. Right. Um, They're not my favorite, but I'll happily forward those to other people. That's great. I love that about the freelance world. Like once you get established, like, oh, you know, I'm at this point where I just, this doesn't work for me or I'm not interested and I can just Right. Insert said name here. And I, that's what right. I love about this community too. We'll share stuff with each other. And and people, people really do share. We really are in a field where, where people are generous and will in fact share those things or, or work together. And, and all of that really does happen. Not that there's not exceptions of people who are mean and whatever, but there's, <laughs> yes, there's more people who are generous 
and who will share those those things and refer things. The other thing is I have a lot of repeat business that if you can make your clients happy, they will just come back and hire you over and over. Yes, I love that too. And that's the other thing. Now that's hard to get started on, right? Like I realize if you're trying to find your first project, that's not useful advice. You know, you need to start on on Upwork at the lower rates in order to get yourself some experience. Right. But networking, and once you get those clients, really keeping them happy so they'll continue to hire you or they'll refer other people to you. Um, I love it. One of the things I say to people, see a lot of people transitioning into the space or meaning instructional design, whether it's corporate, higher ed, freelance. And I'm like, there's space here for everyone. And I'm serious. There's space here for everyone. You don't realize how deep you can go into different places where people need instructional design support. Speaking of sharing stuff, you share a lot of great resources and tools on your blog and your website. I'm interested in knowing how you start curating that stuff and sharing it out. Like what was the, the idea behind that? I kind of know the idea, but I want to hear from you. Like it's big now. I'm imagining you're getting thousands and thousands of hits a day on all your resources. I will say my blog does not get as much traffic as some of the other sites in the- It will now. (laughs) Yes. But I will say the blog really has been this thing that I started out doing less of the writing for myself and a lot more curating other resources. That job that I'd had when I started my blog in 2006, I was doing lots of research and those grad courses for teachers, we always had lots of links to other resources, ended up always being part of the courses that we provided as the additional supplemental stuff. And so I would bookmark those things and keep track of them. And then my blog also ended up being a place to share things. And I think for people who are new in the field, and really, I started my blog in 2006, I'd only been working as an instructional designer for a little over two years at that point. I didn't have tons of experience when I started. So just helping curate things and point people to other useful resources was a good part of how I got started. Yeah, I love that. The blog post that got me the big jump in traffic initially is titled, What Does an Instructional Designer Do? Simple. It it was. Yes. But, and it was based on, I was in an online group. I think at that point it was in Yahoo groups. I know you also have been in tech long enough to remember Yahoo groups. Yes, I remember. Those email lists. Yes. Um, I think it actually originally hit er, earlier that had been out of a group that was, I think might've even been in a major domo email list. I mean, it was like an older, it was originally a women in technology kind of group and where people were looking for, even then at that point, people were looking for, well, if I was a teacher, what other career options are there even out there? And I kept answering this question about instructional design and how I'd gotten out of teaching and into instructional design. It's like, okay, if I've answered this question for three or four different people, I should just put it on my blog. And then every time somebody asks me, I'll link to it. Yes. And there's a concept. Yeah. (laughs) But honestly, a lot of my blog does end up being, uh, many of those blog posts are somebody emailed me a question and I answered it. And if I've already taken the time to write several paragraphs in a response via email or LinkedIn message or whatever, you know, I already have half a blog post written and we'll go post that. Because if somebody asked me that question, other people probably haven't, and I just haven't heard them ask the question. Right. And that's a good use for how do you make it useful in yeah, like, how do you like, or, man. you know, yeah. 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 No, I, I love the thought process behind that because it's yeah. so simple and people 
they have a tendency to believe that it's like we sit for hours and just think about what we're going to write about. And then it takes us hours longer to write it, but sometimes it's very simple and it just comes to us. And especially through that crowdsourcing or talking to people like, I need to write about this. This is something important. Right. And there is some of that too, right? Like I, I won't say that like, there's none of that. I have things that I've planned out yeah. on my blog or that I've got topics or that, you know, I know I'm going to be presenting at a conference about something. And so I'm going to write because my blog is often the, the first draft of my thoughts for presentations. I do like the exercise of writing mm-hmm. because it, it does help me figure out what I think and organize my thoughts by doing that writing. And so the practice of consistently writing, of putting something out there and writing a blog post every week does help me organize my thoughts so that I can explain it better so that people can understand it. And because if you're going to make it to the point where other people can understand what you're talking about, you of course have to understand it pretty well yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. One thing we haven't mentioned yet, and I'm going to mention it before I even ask you the question about what's coming up on the project timeline or timeline for you is that you've been identified as one of the top 100 influencers from Edgeflow. David Wynn has put you out there on that list. And that is something to be said, my friend. That is amazing. And congratulations on that. Yeah, I'm really pleased with that list. I think you're doing an excellent job of generating attention by drip feeding this list out and only announcing, you know, four people at a time, you know, 12 people a week. They're going to stretch this out. And and is it gimmicky? Yes. Am I a hundred percent following along and looking at these posts every single day? Yes. Yes, I am. Me too. Um, (laughs) It's cool. It is wild to me on a list. A lot of these I'm like, oh, okay. I'm on a list with Luke Hobson and Carl Kopp and Miriam Newland and Clark Quinn and okay. Like all that feels good. I'm on a list with Maria Montessori. How did that happen? Like, <laughs> when did I get here? <laughs> like that feels wild to me. <laughs> I can only imagine, but I'm so glad they're doing that list. Cause I think it's so cool. It's just the variety, like the variety of people that are being highlighted. I just love it every day yeah. when they post about it. So congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you very much. We, I could probably talk to you all day and we can have conversations all day and uh, yeah. just chit chat about instructional design and all the wonderful things you're doing. But I have two final questions for you. I want to know what's coming up for you. Like, what is your next step? What are you doing? Things you can share with the audience that you want to put out there in the world. And then I also want to know what you think about the future of instructional design. Where are we going with this ID type role freelance? How's that all going to shift and change in the future? Yeah. So for this year, I piloted a course last year uh, that is a deep dive in branching scenarios. And I am tweaking that currently, and I'm going to offer that course again, probably once in the spring and once in the fall. That's the plan right now. Hoping to add another course that is more on the development side and creating branching scenarios and storyline. But my deep dive is called uh, Build Your Branching Scenario, and it is nine weeks of start to finish, really digging into branching scenarios from the initial analysis and planning all the way through writing and prototyping and then developing and refining and getting the visuals and the technical side of things working. So that's the big thing for, um, for me this year. We're obviously going to put all that in the show notes so people know where to find it. 
Yes, yes, that's out there. Um, and hopefully, and I know uh, I will be at the Learning Solutions Conference in Orlando in April. I'm hoping to be at a couple of other conferences too. We'll see uh, where I get accepted to speak, but nice. um, hoping to do a few of those things. Excellent. And then the, the future of education and where instructional design is going. So I think you are right that there is a bunch of cyclical conversations that we have in the field of education. And sometimes these things are, okay, we've already had this conversation. We've sort of have done this already and it doesn't really change that much, right? Like the metaverse stuff does feel very much like the conversations that we had about Second Life. Yes. 15 years ago. And frankly, a lot of the same mistakes being made because people don't look at it or people haven't been in the field long enough to see that. Every time a new technology comes out, there are predictions that this new technology will completely replace the old technology and we won't use it anymore. Very rarely does that happen. TV did not completely replace radio. We still have radio. We don't use radio in the same way. And in fact, radio is now shifted. There's more streaming and there's podcasts and other things with it, but it hasn't disappeared. We use it in a different way. So every time there's a new technology, there are predictions that this will be the future of education and it's the way that everything will be going. Anytime somebody is selling you something that says, this is the way that all learning will be in the future, they are selling you snake oil. Yes. There is never any tool that is going to be the right answer 100% of the time. I love branching scenarios. I have a whole hour-long presentation on when to not use branching scenarios. I think that's good, giving both perspectives. Right? Because you need that other side of things too. So we, we talk about AI and we talk about the tools of that. I think Clark Quinn has been talking for a couple of years about instead of the artificial intelligence, the augmented intelligence, AI is not going to replace instructional design jobs. But I do think we're now at a point where it is going to change what our jobs are in the way that radio didn't go away, but it has changed how we use it. I do think the AI tools are going to augment what instructional designers are doing. Yeah. I think there's going to be a fair amount of AI work that is, you start with a rough draft generated by the AI. AI tools are getting to be good enough to do draft of multiple choice questions or, okay, here's the stuff from the SME. Give me a first pass summary. And then the, the instruction designer is then going to go through and clean that up because if it's not at the point where you can quite do it. Yeah, I it's also not, think it's not quite as clean and concise. It needs the human touch. It's not. It does need a human touch. And I think it's going to continue. I also think that AI is going to struggle to come up with this sorts of examples and scenarios and application for content. We're already in many respects at the point where you can take a PowerPoint with slide notes and then you can create a summary and a participant guide and an instructor guide and a multiple choice quiz questions. And so if that's the only thing you're doing as an instructional designer, yes, indeed, your job is in danger. Yeah. If you don't add more value than that, if all you're doing is sort of summarizing and, and organizing and making multiple choice questions that measure comprehension and remembering, you are in trouble. So what more do we do? We create stories. We create examples. We figure out where those edge cases are and figure out the scenarios and the ways for people to do it. We help people have actual practice exercises to apply it. 
I think that as a writer, there isn't going to be as much room for mediocre writers, because I do think that if you're a mediocre writer, that AI probably can do your job. Yeah, 100% I agree. And I think we have hit a shift here, which does mean that writing skills for instruction designers and getting not just okay, but getting really good at writing is still a skill that is important. There's a lot, and, to, di- and there's a lot to dissect here with what you're saying. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Giving yeah. the listeners a lot to think about. Yeah. Oh my goodness. You know, like, I love it how you're saying though, like if you're very surface level and you're just doing basic instructional design things, and yes, obviously you're going to feel threatened by AI, but if you're doing more integral parts of the learning experience and your behavioral changing, designing, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, like, no, it's still going to need us. It's still, we still need to exist. Yep. Do I think we're going to have some AI tools to do, you know, sort of the the rote and repetitive things? I, I would love to actually see the AI take over some of these things. I think for higher ed instruction design, some of the, well, we need to help the SMEs copy and paste their stuff into the learning management system. I think, honestly, it will be a good thing for the field when we have some AI tools that do more of that automatically. Yeah. And so then we can free up the instructional designer's time to be less copy and paste into the LMS and more working with faculty to talk about, well, tell me when you do this face-to-face, what's really great about the way you teach this face-to-face and the interactions? What's really great and what's really critical that we try to replicate in the online environment? And let me help you figure out how to do that and how to create something that is new or even better when we shift this course from face-to-face to online. And I think that will be a benefit for higher ed instructional designers. I, I am looking forward to that. Yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to that. Well, Christy, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and sharing all this knowledge and expertise and all the things you're doing out in the space. I'm so humbled and honored to speak with you. And thank you so much for coming on Ed Up Ed Tech. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a fun conversation. Thank you for letting me be as nerdy as I Absolutely. Like we today. always <laughs> welcome the nerdiness here. So thanks so much. All right. Thank you. You've just experienced an another amazing episode of Ed Up Ed Tech. Be sure to visit our website at edupedtech.com to get all the updates on the latest ed tech happenings. See you next time.